fam, thanks for checking this little recording out. If you're listening to this, it means you must have attended a talk, workshop, or even a class of mine that I recorded, and you want to get the nitty gritty. That's great. Excellent. If you're just being snoopy and you're trying to figure things out, it's all good. My name's Dan White Hodge. I'm an educator, and you're about to learn something today. Thanks again for following up, and I truly hope this adds an enrichment to you and your work. As always, hit me up if you got them questions at whitehodge.com and check out my podcast while you're at it, Profane Faith. I'll talk with you later. Peace. All right. I think we're going to go ahead and get started here. Make sure my little recorder's on. Welcome, welcome. Good to have you guys all on here. This is a bit bigger crowd than from this morning. You guys doing all right? Yes. Feeling good? Yes. Feeling recharged? <laughs> all right, all right, that's cool. Um, well, welcome. This is uh, ministering or communicating the gospel in a multicultural, multi ethnic setting. Um, name's Daniel White Hodge, and uh, for those of you this morning, you got a, you know, a little bit of brief of who I am, but uh, for those of you who weren't there this morning, um, I've been in, in and around youth ministry for almost 20 years now and work with organizations such as uh, World Vision and Young Life, and so um, I just recently moved here from uh, Los Angeles, Southern California, and uh, so I'm, I'm here now and, 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 and enjoying what people keep telling me is a mild winter, but... Uh, <laughs> We'll see about that. We'll see about that. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is a particular topic that I find really interesting. Um, and the challenge that we're going to have today is this. I've, I've, I teach, I've been teaching for quite a long time now. Uh, this is one of my specialties, race and ethnicity in U.S. Uh, and American society. And, uh, you know, we'll spend 18, 19 weeks on a subject like this and barely skim the surface. So. Please, there's a, you know, there's a caveat. Please don't feel like this 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 session in 40 minutes because I want to spend 40 minutes and then kind of give the last 20 minutes of Q&A that you're going to get all these answers and walk. I mean, it's this 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 is an ongoing issue, and I would strongly recommend. I've got a list of resources that you can get. Please contact me. I'll give you my contact information that you can get to educate yourself about the issues surrounding race and ethnicity, uh, because this is kind of where we're going. I teach a lot of courses on intercultural communication, and the number one thing that I hear all the time is that, you know. I didn't even know this was an issue. You know, I didn't even know this was going on. You know, but these are some of the same people going into communities and ministering and doing missions. And, you know, again, like I said this morning, you know, if you're a person who says, you know, I have no culture, you know, I don't know what culture I'm from, you know, uh, that's a dangerous place to be, you know, because you will think that your brand of Christianity and your theology is the right way and the, and the only way to do things. Uh, and that just continues what I like to call neo-urban colonialism. And so, uh, and I'm trying to break that, trying to break that. Race and ethnicity is a complex issue. Uh, we live in a very racist society. Uh, it's probably the worst racist climate that we've had in about 40 years. Uh, it's worse now than it was probably in the 60s. Like I said this morning, at least in the 60s, I knew where people stood. You know, coloreds here, you know, whites over here, and we, and we knew. Um, but it's subtle now, which is what makes it dangerous. All right? It's subtle. It's on the undercurrent. You know, you got to pick up on certain things. You got to begin to understand what social constructs are. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to say all these things up, up ahead because this is a you know this is this is a big topic you know how do we communicate how do we be effective you know in communicating the gospel in multicultural multi-ethnic settings oh all right um, because our, our our cultural and social landscape is changing you know there most sociologists and I'm one of them say that you know in the next 25 years the ethnic landscape is going to you know be vastly different in Los Angeles. 
62% of the population, out of 13.6 million people in the city of Los Angeles, 60% of them are Mexican-American. All right? So they've already taken the dominant ethnic group position. So what does that mean? Oh, I love a multi-ethnic group. Nah. Let's break that down a little bit because that's votes, that's districting, those are sectors, all those things matter, which is you know, why there's, there's a fight right now about how, you know, how districts get brought up. There's a reason why districts look like you know, they're horrible. Have you ever studied you know, district lines and where people vote? I mean, look at you know, how those lines are drawn. They're not just drawn you know, haphazardly. And race and ethnicity is at the forefront of that. How we view black males in this country you know, is a very big issue. How we view power authorities in this country is a big issue. How we see power structures and who brings the minister, you know, the, who brings the gospel. How those things are brought, and then what gender they are as well. So these are these are big areas that uh, I don't. I'm not going to claim and say, oh, you're going to walk out of here with ten points that you're going to be able to. I'm going to give you some stuff, <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, this is going to be an ongoing conversation. Uh, just FYI, you can contact me uh, for notes. I have all these. These are PDF notes. I'm kind of a, you know, a techie guy, so I like to kind of keep things. I like to save trees and save paper. Um, so if you're really interested in this stuff, email me, and I'll, just, I'll send you my notes. I'm also recording this, so if you want the audio and you want to share this, you know, this is, I want this to be an ongoing resource for you. Uh, one of the things I struggled with early on in my, in my youth ministry career was there was just not a lot of ministry resources, particularly for the hood. You know, yeah, I always go and translate stuff. You know, people didn't think it was relevant and stuff, so um, I want to be able to provide that. Make sense so far? All right, all right. Well, let's dive right in. Let's dive right on in and let's define what culture is because sometimes culture is a very interesting term. You know? and a lot of folks just don't just know what that means. So let's just dive right in and look at what culture is. Now, this is from one of my favorite books uh, by Ting Toomey and Chung, Stella Ting, uh, and I'm forgetting, uh, I should know her, she was a colleague of mine out at Cal State Long Beach, but nevertheless, they wrote a book called Understanding Intercultural Communication. A uh, great read for those of you trying to better understand this. In fact, you know, it's like a 300 some odd page book, it's cheap to get, can point you in the right direction and they have activities and all kind of things that you can be doing. So, But I wanted to give you this definition about what a culture is. So here we go. A learned meaning system okay, that consists of patterns of traditions, beliefs, values, norms, meanings, and symbols. Okay, So patterns of traditions, beliefs, values, norms, meanings, and symbols. All right, That are passed on from one generation to the next and are shared by varying degrees to interacting by interacting members of a community. All right? So the key here is patterns of traditions, beliefs, values, norms, meanings, and symbols. So I'll ask you a question, the same question that I asked my uh, you know, intercultural comm class at the beginning of every semester. All right. Um, at this event right now, by this definition, are we at a multicultural event? Let's just be honest. Yes. yes. No. no. Yes. No. Maybe. I don't know. Whatever you say, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Let's say, let's, let's just pull it out. Who says, somebody who thinks, no, we're not on a multicultural event? Tell, tell us why. Yes. Um, why? Uh, because there's one dominant uh, culture that's represented. Okay. One dominant culture represented. I saw your hand up. No? Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, I agree with her. I agree with her. Okay. A pattern of traditions, beliefs, values, norms. Okay. Around the topic of this conference. Okay. Cool. Who says yes? Who says yes? We are at a multicultural event. Yes. Well, I mean, we're 
we have most of us probably the same religion, mm-hmm. but um, there are a lot of different um, denominations of that religion with okay. a lot of different traditions and beliefs and values and um, ways of interacting with each other. Okay. That are present. All right. So, do you have other races present in yeah. the room? So, I would. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. Yes. Something. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a dominant culture, but you go to Detroit or Chicago or a lot of other places, and mm-hmm. it definitely isn't a, a dominant culture. Okay. All right. Good. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I've learned from interacting with my youth group mm-hmm. that I there is no presumption that they all grew up learning the same rites and rituals and practices as children. Okay. I, I'm just shocked. We're all in the same church, but yeah. Yeah. different experiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here, oh, you got something. Yes, sir. I was just going to say that um, this is multicultural because we have different, we share different beliefs, values, norms, and meanings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here's the thing. This is what I, you can disagree with me, but this is what I would say based off of this. And by the way, there's many other definitions. I don't want to say like this is the definition, but as I've studied, you know, because I'm a rhetorician by, by trade as well, sociologist and a rhetorician, meaning I study rhetoric, discourse, communication analysis. So I look at words, I look at how they impact things. There's tons of cultural, but for the most part, they kind of agree with this. So I just wanted to point one out. I mean, you, you in my class, you'd be looking at six different definitions. We don't got that time. So here's one. So I don't want you to be thinking, oh, he's giving us like the one and only. I'm a postmodern type of guy, so I don't believe in like it's just one right way to do things. But here's the thing: based off of this definition, this is a broad definition. It's very blunt. It's not specific. Based off of this definition, I would make the argument that yes, we are in a multicultural setting because we all come from different patterns of traditions, beliefs, values, norms, meanings, and symbols. Here is the clinker: what do we value, and what is put out in front as the one? This is going back to dominant, okay? This dominance idea. Because when we talk about theology, we rarely say white theology. It's just theology. All right? But there's black theology, there's Asian theology, there's hip-hop theology. So that creates what critical race theorists call a, calls a sense of otherness. In other words, you create an otherness for somebody. They are the other person. And that creates exclusion. All right? Talking about inclusion and exclusion here, and who sets, because remember, the winners of wars, the people in power, they're the ones who write the history books. And this creates a social construction of a lot of different things. Reality, identity, and meaning. Okay? Reality, identity, and meaning. is social construct, meaning that it gets built up in how we live. When you go to places like Philadelphia and Boston and New Hampshire and New York and study the history, who are the statues that you see represented as the warriors? You know, these grand old men, right? That stand on horses with swords saying, oh, go on yonder. You know, but we rarely hear about a person like Crispus Attucks. You want to know who that is? He was the first person who actually died at the Boston Tea Party, African-American, a patriot of this country. But we're more familiar with Benedict Arnold, a traitor of this country, than we are Crispus Attucks. Does that make sense so far? So I had to learn all about my African-American history, not through, not through any of my education. In fact, when I was in college, when I was taking history courses, if I were to study outside of what was said as the norm, I would have failed the class. So I had to go study Dickinson, I had to go study all these people, you know, but rarely did anybody understand who even W.E. Du Bois was. Michael Eric Dyson. Cornell West. And these are like 
staples, you know. And so understanding that, again, what we value as culture becomes part of our ingrained society. Is that making sense so far? So I was like, you disagree with me about multi, you know, the whole multicultural thing, but it's about, about what we put up as the one. So that's what I would say, yes, this becomes dominance. It becomes dominance saying this is the right way to do things. All right? Let's keep moving. This is, again, the culture. I wanted to set this up first because I wanted us to understand, because here's the thing. There is almost no school, especially Christian schools, that don't have some kind of multicultural statement. But that word multiculturalism has been raped to death. And most of us don't even understand what the heck it even means. Because by definition, you can have all white folks, but they can be multicultural. You got white folks from the South, you got white folks who are skaters, white folks from the beach, you got white folks who are very conservative, white folks who are very liberal. Multicultural. But are they multi-ethnic? Well, that's a different word. Because oftentimes culture gets associated with race and ethnicity. And those are three completely different paradigms. Is that making sense so far? Let's keep going. Let's define race and ethnicity. Everybody got this who wants to get it? Okay. Like I said, I've got the notes. Email me. I'll send them to you. I'll hook you up. So here we go. Race and ethnicity. Defining race and ethnicity. Race. Point blank, it's a social construct. There's no biological meaning. It's created in the 1600s by uh, elite, elite Europeans uh, in this country who noticed that poor whites, they weren't even called white at that time, uh, and poor blacks, indentured slaves, because remember slave, that term right there, slave, even that term right there, uh, there was actually in the first colonies of what would become the United States, there were actually more white slaves than there were African slaves. We miss that in history books. Slave gets looked at as a term that's just solely African Americans. In fact, slave, that term, historically comes from Slavic, Slavs, you know, those from Yugoslavia. And they were looked at as a lesser than people. So the Brits enslaved them. And they called them, hey, you're, you must be a Slav. You must be a slave. Bacon's Rebellion. If you haven't studied Bacon's Rebellion, look at it. It was poor whites, poor blacks, marauding together, saying, we're getting our cocks cleaned by these elites. who out, We outnumber them, you know, 20 to 1. So why should we be sitting here making, you know, creating your cotton and your tobacco? No, 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 no. And plus, I'm an indentured servant? No, 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 no. So the elites whites said, wait a minute. This is crazy. What are we going to do with this? Because they're outnumbering us. What are we going to do? You know, we're gonna, you know, go pick our own tobacco? Go, go pick our own cotton? No. You know, the whole point of that time was to be a person of leisure. You know, I'm not going to do that. So we create a system, right? And we say, white, black, yellow, green. This, your color of your skin is actually more important. And it worked. Those, those rebellions almost stopped almost immediately. All right? If you study the history. And so race became a dominant word white, black. Because how do you get somebody, how do you get poor people to go fight a war, the civil war, to, to keep your slaves? That they don't even own. People, poor people, they don't even own the, 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 the shirt on their back. You have to convince them that the color of their skin is more important because the lie that was told to poor working indentured uh, whites that was like, you know, these slaves are free. They're going to take, you know, take your jobs. Like, well, what are you talking about? They already got your jobs. You know, they already got your job. But at the end of the day, it's one of those things that gets prepared. It's rhetoric political rhetoric, religious rhetoric, you know, you begin to see these things. And so race was constructed. And like I guess it worked. It worked brilliantly. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer is, is a technique that's been used for years. Just like the mantra that says, work hard and dream and you can achieve anything in life. It's been used by elite, you know, societies for years. You can trace that all the way back to Greco-Roman society. 
So race is a social construct rooted in colors, white, yellow, brown, red, and black. And by the way, those are your racial constructs. That's your hierarchy, starting with whites, yellow, Asians, brown, you can have some Latinos, red, uh, usually American Indian uh, and Indian uh, from India, and then, of course, black. But again, race, you don't know what, what they are because here's the thing. Race is always on display, always. Ethnicity isn't, which is the next term. Ethnicity is biological. It's actually in our gospel. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, ethnos. That word nations is actually ethnos. It's where we get ethnicity from. It literally means nations and those who are different from us. Those who are biologically different. Okay, but oftentimes we get these two, two words confused. So I want to make sure we have these definitions. So ethnicity is biological. It's more historical. It's looking at your roots. Where do you come from? You know, people say, well, I'm nothing. No, you're something. You're something. You got something. But in this country, we say, if you look at us like a certain folk and a dominant, you know, you don't, you don't have to claim anything. Pamela Perry writes an amazing article, and the title of it says, Being White Means Never Having to Say Your Ethnicity. I'll email that to you. It's an amazing read. I have all my students read it. We're looking at cultural identity, uh, which is an ongoing process. Pamela Perry, being white means never having to say your ethnicity. And so these are some powerful constructs, because if you already walk into a system that says, you know, hey, I ain't got to think about it. I ain't got to deal with it. That's why it's easy for a lot of white Americans, a lot of white Christians to say, why do we keep talking about this race issue? Can't we just stop talking about it? You know, it's because you don't have to think about it. The only time a lot of whites have to think about it is when they're in a room filled with other people that are different color than them. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm a minority. Like, well, yeah, that was me in college. You know, that was me in seminary. That was me going, you know, and trying to understand this. So ethnicity and race are big things. We got to understand it. So again, racially speaking, we have a black president. Ethnically, nah, you're American, a little wine in him, he's got African-American in him. Ethnicity is complex. But again, race is always on display. So I can just judge you and say, you know, it's just like when people look at me, they think, oh, you're just black. Yeah, racially speaking, but ethnically, I'm Mexican-American and African-American. Fluent in Spanish. Grew up on the Mexican side of my family. You know? And so people don't, you know, people never believe that. Oh, no, you're not. Are you a Rodriguez or a Gonzalez? <laughs> what, all, all Latinos have to have those last names, huh? <laughs> That's why I love going to Miami, because I actually get treated as an Afro-Latino right there. You know, in L.A., I always struggle, man. It was, it was a tension between the Mexicans and the African-Americans. But in Miami, as soon as I get off the plane, man, people talking to me in Spanish. Man, I love it. love going to Miami. Uh-oh, here we go. The P word, privilege, plays a part in our communication across cultures. If you haven't picked up on it yet, this session is really about you. This really session is about you, because if you don't understand these things, how are you going to communicate the gospel in a multi-ethnic setting? You're not. It's going to be hard. So when some kid comes and says, you know, I'm different than you, I'm dumb, you know, we're different, you're going to be like, no, we're not, we're the same. I'm colorblind. <laughs> yeah, that's like the worst argument. You know, I don't see color. Like, no, 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 no. You know, if you don't see color, then you don't really see me. All right? It's what's called colorblind ideology. It's a whole thing on critical race theory. Like I said, critical race theory, it'll piss you off if you stay in there too long. Because um, there's a lot of stuff going on with that. Um, so at the end of the day, privilege. Because here's the thing, you say, well, Dan, what about places like South Africa? Well, privilege doesn't always necessarily mean you have the numbers. It means about power, access, and resources. So in South Africa, so yes, they, you know, shoot, whites are outnumbered there 12 to 1. But who has the power? Who has the access? Who has the resources? Who controls the money? Who controls politics? Who controls policy? If you ever get a chance, study law and policy over the last 100 years in this country. 
You see, like when fear starts to come, laws start to change. You know, when you think about 9-11 and what happened with 9-11. You know, you think about the Patriot Act, right? There's six Patriot Acts right now. I, have, I can give them all to you. I have them all on my laptop. read them all. They're about six, 700 pages each. Those were all wish lists by people who were like, you know, extremists, like wanted to get the, you know, no-knock seizures, you know, uh, no search warrants, you know, tapping, phone tapping. You couldn't get that stuff passed in a sane society. But everybody's scared. Ooh, the boogeyman. You know, whatever the boogeyman is, right? <laughs> whatever insurgent. Because what the hell is an insurgent anyway? I don't know. Well, kill as many as you want. That's the other part of privilege, too. You can dehumanize people. Well, that's another talk. So privilege is a part of that. And fear ties into that. You know, it's like, I'm scared. I want to be protected. You know, and as uh, Cornell West so adequately states, he says, you know, we ex essentially have the niggerization of society after 9-11. And so for the first time, white Americans feel what black Americans have been feeling in this country for 400 years. Endangerment. Feeling that you're going to be attacked at any time. I don't feel, personally, as a, as, a, as, as a black racially person, I don't fear getting blown up. I don't. You know who I fear? Police. Every time I get pulled over, I fear. Is it going to be my turn? Because I have. Growing up, anyone see Menace to Society? I'm going to share with some stuff with you. Okay, one, two people. All right. If you haven't seen Menace to Society, it's a great film. It's a great hoodie film. And there's a scene in there that the Hughes brothers did exceptionally well. And there's a scene where they take um, Kane and I forget the other brother's name who's playing the Muslim uh, brother. They take him down to the docks, beat him, and then they drop him off in the other side of the hood. That was a common event and a common occurrence with police in our neighborhood. I personally got beat like that at least twice and saw my best friend killed in front of me. But when we went to City Hall, tried to talk about that stuff, no one believed us. My own mom didn't even believe me. You were resisting arrest. You must have done something to incur those wrath, you know. So it's just, that's what I fear, because it's happened. You know, that's what I fear. Those are the things. I don't think about getting blown up in no subway. No, I, I don't. Now, I, and don't get me wrong. I'm not that I'm callous towards what happened on 9-11. I'm not. I feel. Because now I can actually have a conversation with folks a little bit deeper. Because I'm like, ah, you lost something. I, I've been losing something. So it makes a little difference. Like when a gang says, we just lost a homie. We're going to go bomb on them. Well, the U.S. has kind of done that as well. We're going to go bomb on Iraq. So it's kind of the same dynamics. One's micro, one's macro. One we say is socially unacceptable. The other we say we is socially acceptable. And privilege and race is all tied to that. Does so that make sense? I know I'm saying a lot. I know I'm getting looked at as an extremist. But we've got to talk about these things because I think it's important as you're communicating a gospel message. You know, and probably a lot of you have heard this message. I mean, I've given this talk at a bunch of different places. The people usually showed up, and the people already know this mess. You know, the people actually need to begin to understand this. They're not even in here. You probably, most of you, I see some of you nodding your head. You probably heard all this stuff, read all the books that I've probably read and stuff, you know. But at the end of the day, that's okay. You can be agents of change. We'll get to that in a second. So race, ethnicity, and privilege. Privilege can make you feel ethnocentric, as if your culture were the best, and that everyone should just come to you. You know, just come to me. And privilege is not just racial privilege. You got beauty privilege. Because there ain't no way the Kardashians, if they were, they looked any other different, that they'd be getting the stuff that they'd be getting. I ain't hating on them, you know what I'm saying? But there's beauty privilege. I mean, I used to work the club scene in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. I can tell you, man, if you, you know, like I had one student of mine, she was just, you know, she was 17. But she looked like she was 20-something. She was cute, and she never paid to get in the clubs. 21 and over, that's a joke. We'll just let you in the VIP side. She's like, I've never paid in my entire life. I had a student today at Azusa Pacific University. She told me the same thing. She was 22 at the time. She said, I've never paid to get in a club. Paid to get in a club? Why? <laughs> Why would I? You know, so you just begin privilege. You, also begin, you get a sense of entitlement. I should, it should just come to me that way, you know?
So privilege is big. We could unpack it more, but there's beauty privilege, there's class privilege. You know, because one of the things that scared America in 1994 when O.J. Simpson, when you agree with the decision or not, that scared America was that one of the first times in history a black man bought himself a trial. That scared the hell out of America. Because they were like, whoa. Now, white Americans have been doing that for eons, decades. You know, but for the first time, a black American, you know, because well, you agree with the decision or not, doesn't matter. It scared the hell out of people. People were worried. Sales and security went up about after that year. So that's when Obama got um, elected. People went and bought out, I think the biggest gun that was bought is an AR-15. I love guns. AR-15, assault rifle 15, fully automatic, no, semi-automatic. That's AR-17. Military uses AR-15. AR-17 is a semi-automatic. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Heat. I love Heat, Michael Mann's films. There's the guns they use there. It's a rapid-fire machine gun. Why? Obama's going to shut down the guns, you know. Got to protect our country. I have in-laws that still believe the Redcoats are coming back from Britain. No, I'm not making this. I'm serious. It's a heart attack and diarrhea. And that if we don't protect ourselves some way, that we are going to have you know, some revolt, that the Brits still want to come over here 200 some odd years later, and so we have to maintain the right to vote. You know? So these are, these are some things that we have to begin to think about because they get stuck. They get stuck in us. Because you know, again, who uses the weapons? You know, you see 50 Cent using a weapon, you think, oh my gosh, that gangster. Oh my gosh, he's just uh, deteriorating from society. Then we watch Goodfellas, where the entire show is built on violence. And, oh, that's great, Bill. Give him. Oh, Scorsese did such a good job. Give him an Oscar, right? It's like the same thing with Do the Right Thing. People think, oh, this is a violent film. Yeah, but at the same time, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator blowing people up, shooting them in broad daylight. But we're such mental midgets that we, have, you know, we can't see, tell what's the difference between reality and film. But see, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing that makes rap so interesting. You know, because you got black and brown males speaking against, against power structures. But Bruce Springsteen can get up and say, F the system. In fact, Bono got up on national television when the war started from YouTube and said, this effing war is a mess. We need to stop it. Oh, Bono. Oh, it's great. We didn't even go censor him either. No, no, I love that, Bono. But you get, you know, Talib Kweli, a most deaf, and they get arrested. They got arrested in front of Radio City Music Hall for talking out against the war two years later. See what I'm saying? So these are some big issues. You think, well, Dan, what does that have to do with the gospel? Let's keep going. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we have what I like to call the intercultural staircase. I'm going to pull this up real quick and talk about the different levels. Now, this is basic, I know, but we got to talk about it, all right? We got first we got what's called the unconscious incompetence stage. This is a bad place to be because you're both unaware and you're incompetent about doing anything about it. <laughs> You know, I had a student one time, I do, I do an immersion course with students, take them into the city, you know, leave them there for 16 weeks and talk about it. And when we were waiting at a bus stop, one of my white students was talking about one of my Latina students. And she was, you know, talking and saying, you know, I just like, you know, so-and-so over there. And I was like, oh, why is that? Well, you know, she's just so clean. And I was like, whoa, 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 uh, okay, what did you just say? Well, she's just so clean and she's got good English and she's got both of her parents. Just completely unaware that what she was saying was completely offensive. And the old girl was overhearing the other thing, but because she was a minority, she couldn't really say much. Oh, there you go. She couldn't really say much, you know, because it's like, if you're a minority, why are you going to speak up? You already know what's coming, right? So as the, as the person in power structure, I had to say something. That unconscious competence stage, this seems to be all the supervisors and bosses and senior pastors and people who are gatekeepers tend to really be at this place right here. And I'm telling you why, because... Yes men and yes women make good executives because they keep the status quo. 
I mean, it's just the way systems and structures work. Read any social psychological, sociological study on systems and structures. I have a ton of them. Email me. I'll mail them to you. And that's the one thing that they say, the number one thing, is that, you know, so systems and structures, they don't want to stay the same. They don't want to change. Kidding me? I don't want to change nothing. Well, what do we have? We have the conscious incompetence stage. So I'm aware, you know, but I'm, I don't know what to do. Like, oh, I know. You know, this is typically, I get a lot of students who, you know, who are white and say, oh, I hate white people. No, 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 stop there. Let me just stop you there. We ain't talking about no hate and nobody. You know, but again, I'm conscious of it, but how, what do I do? You know, I've heard students say, I hate that I'm white. No, 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 don't hate who you are. It's not what this is about. But it is about becoming, the next stage, conscious competence. You say, well, Dan, why is that not at the top where we've got unconscious competence? Because guess what? I don't want us to live in an ideal area that I can, oh, someday just to reach this area and then I'm done. I worked with a, this youth director who I, he was diligent. He came from this area, incompetent, incom, unconscious, incompetent. He was working. He went to several seminars, read all these books, and then he reached this apex and he said, I'm done. He said, he's, and he stopped learning. Stopped learning. So we went right back down to this stage and in some places in this area because you never, you never get done. So even I, I mean, I'm unconscious about a lot of, for example, Middle Eastern culture. I think I'm pretty competent, but I'm unconscious, so I have to work to get back to this. So we never necessarily just arrive. It's, it's, it's an ongoing work, and it's frustrating. I always tell all of my students that if you're doing good intercultural communication, you're putting your foot in your mouth, and there's conflict and tension. Oh, yeah, conflict and tension, you know, and, and, and that, that's just part of it. It's part of it. You know, shoot, think about all the times Jesus dealt with the disciples murmuring and moaning and griping. I mean, even in the Great Commission, it even says, some doubt it. Man, this can't be God. You know, for real? That's him? I don't believe that, man. What time's lunch, man? Shoot. <laughs> Food talking over here. But Jesus still dealt with that mess. In fact, the disciples really didn't even like each other. I mean, think about it. In Acts, they was like, PC, I'm going over here, you going over there. Bye. That's okay, the gospel still went through. So that, this doesn't necessarily mean we always have to agree, but it does mean we have to push through some of these things. And I would say, let's shoot for this. But if you end up here, or even here, or even here for that matter, start to ask questions. And listen. The L word, listen. Can you listen? All right? But then again, you know, listening takes you know, action at another point. We'll, we'll, hopefully we'll get to that in a second. Is it making sense? Tracking? Yeah? All right, how are we doing on time, brother? What time we got to get out of here? Okay. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, let me, let me talk about that. I think I can get through this real quick. Um, so we've got the intercultural staircase, and so I want to ask the question, why is this so important anyways? Because I always get that a lot. Why is this important, so important? In fact, I had a student one time say, you know, Dad, I don't understand, like, you know, if we just stop talking about it, maybe it would just go away. I was like, man, I wish. I really wish. I wish, I wish it was that simple. If anybody wants to stop talking about raising it, it's me. I'd love to stop talking about it, you know. I'd love to stop thinking that I didn't get passed up for a job because of the color of my skin, right? I'd love to keep thinking that, you know, the black tax doesn't have, or the brown tax, for that matter, has anything. Y'all know what that is, right? The tax that ethnic minorities have to work four or five times harder than their white counterparts, you know, just to get the exact same position, you know. I mean, because unemployment within the African-American community is 17 to 19 percent. And that's among educated people with two or more degrees. We ain't even talking about the sector that has no education. That's hovering around the 25%. You don't hear ever hear those numbers, right? Those are, those are the real numbers of what's going on in the community. Same thing in the Latino community is even worse. You know, and you think, oh, Asians, they're smart. Mm -mm. 
Those numbers, are, because we, we have a bad time understanding statistics. Chinese Americans, by and large, when you just look, you see Asians get lumped into what's called a pan-ethnic statement, or a calling, meaning that we just lump everybody into one. They're Asian. Well, you could be from Cambodia, you could be from Vietnam, you could be from Korea, and then there's North and South Korea, then there's different parts of Vietnam. All Asians are not the same. All right? I remember I had my Japanese students one time give me a presentation on Chinese Americans. <laughs> this student, God bless her soul, she raised her hand. I give it to her. I give it to her. She raised her hand. She said, well, what's the difference? How can you people tell each other apart? This was a real question. And they graciously, my Japanese students, you know, handled. They were like, we, we, we can tell. We're, you know, we're from Japan and they're China and everything. But even within that, you know, Chinese Americans are by and large some of the poorest ethnic groups, you know, in, in this country. Because of the immigrant status that they have, the fact that they, you know, have four or five people in the home, so it's hard to get an accurate number. So those numbers actually go low. But when you think about Asian numbers as a whole, oh, they're good in math, they're good in science, and they're just good at the SATs. And another, another colleague of mine did an amazing study in looking at how colleges recruit and how we use, uh, you know, different ethnic groups to recruit. I mean, I know that was the case at Azusa where the blacks were on the football field and in the basketball courts. Asians were in the library and in the uh, science room. Uh, and everybody who was in top management was white and male and had a suit on. This was when you do a case study of these things. I mean, these things are out there. You just kind of got to look, just kind of know how to poke them out. So I'm saying intercultural staircase, big thing. Well, let's go, why is this so important? No human being is born needing to attend a diversity workshops, classes. That is, no human being is born with racist, sexist, and oppressive attitudes. You learn them. Where do you learn them from? Family. Family. You know, when I grew up in Texas, um, you know, this is a whole different country, you know, but uh, Texas was an interesting spot. Uh, I'll give you an idea of where I grew up in a little small town. Uh, if you know me, you've heard this, probably heard some of these stories, but uh, in sixth grade, uh, we had a Halloween dress up contest, and a friend of mine got dressed as a Klan member and won first place. So that gives you an idea of the attitude. And these things still persist. This wasn't but about 20 years ago. People think that the civil rights movement died. That's why, you know, movies like The Help just burned me up because people think, oh, that was just then. No. You know, you've got to have a damn movie like that where you have the person gets a career and everybody else just goes back and they're just going to be happy. Like, no, don't get me started on the help. Or shows, you know, movies like, um, uh, what is it, Freedom Riders or, uh, you know, where the white person is the one doing all that. Again, the great white hope. I'm like, wait a minute, we have plenty of multi-ethnic you know, people who are communicating. Not that you want to tear down white men, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, we have plenty of gospel ministers of the Asian who are multi-ethnic. You know, and same thing with, what was that one, Sandra Bullock in that she won an award for? I mean, those are, and when you look at it from a critical perspective, it's, it's very demeaning. But we learn those things. We learn those things. Somebody learned and had to teach my friend how to say nigger. He didn't know that. Somebody had to teach him that. Had to say spick, had to say wet back. You know, those, you have to learn those things. As a child, we learn about the world. We are often misinformed about people who are different from ourselves and our families by virtue of ethnicity, religion, Oh, sexual orientation, that's a big one. Class, or in other ways. Some misinformation constitutes stereotypes. I teach a class on marriage and family, and it's very rare to have a marriage actually succeed that is interclass. Does that make sense? So if you're trying to marry somebody who's super rich, or you're trying to marry somebody who's super poor, it's, it's hard to work in this society. Hard to work. Because somebody's always thinking, Who's going to pay for that bill? You? Yeah, you got it. You got it. You got all the money. You know, shoot, well, I got to pay. You know, so that starts coming up. Stereotypes are big, man, because they're mental tapes. They go around all the time. You know, they go around all the time. They're coming up. You know, we receive messages from society at large. For example, the media, television, videos, the Internet, parents, friends, family, schools, and even church. 
about who's acceptable, who's not acceptable. How do we treat other folks? You know, and these are big things, y'all, to communicate the gospel. That's what I'm saying. I'm skimming over some of this stuff because you're going to have to go back and do the hard work of really better understand how do I fit into all of this? How am I communicating the gospel? Because one of the things I heard from one of the schools in, in Southern California, I guess I got a lot of examples from Southern California because that's why I've lived pretty much all my life. It was a, you know, school name will remain nameless, but it was, you know, it was a private Christian college that, you know, was just getting tired of the diversity thing. And I remember one of the donors was mad that the, uh, some of the gay students were wearing a little patch of color here. Uh, and one of the donors complained, one of the big donors, you know, who gives like libraries and structures and everything, called the president. And the president called my friend, who was a multicultural director, and said, how long do we keep this diversity thing up before it's just bad for us? And that's the attitude. Two months later, he was fired. All right, he's in Indiana now. This just happened three, four months ago. You know, and relationships get torn up. You know, and they put somebody in there who's able to kind of just go with the flow. What else? Those early learned stereotypes, like I said, become mental tapes that affect both how we think and how we feel about people who are different from us in ethnic backgrounds. Those people, them. Mm. You know, I don't. You know, I don't over there, I don't want to deal with them. You know, those are all things. Those are all barriers to the gospel. The good news of Christ, you know, and then how we perceive that, you know, and how we perceive um, who God is for us in our own lives. And then lastly, because I think God has called us to communicate his gospel message to a new generation. I think it starts with us. It starts with you. That's why I, I think is I think is that important. I think it's dire. I think it's one of the challenges of the 21st century. And we begin to engage in this stuff. And I'm hoping that you guys can be those ministers. Because guess what? If you're that person in your church or your organization that is the one kind of championing this, you're going to be coming up against all kind of madness. Trust me. Especially if it's a denomination older than 60 years. That's usually the cutoff mark. People can handle it at 40 years. You still have problems 50. But once you start passing 50, 60 years, people start getting into the hundreds of years. That's not how we've done it. We've always done it this way. And you're going, no, no, we can't do that. You know, I say, you know, when I was a youth pastor for a church, one of my biggest frustrations wasn't the kids, wasn't even the community, wasn't even the issues that the community and the kids were involved in. It was that church board, those church board meetings, those committee, those bylaws. I remember one time, no, I kid you, I'm not making this up. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I was, I grew up. I was part of an Adventist denomination, and um, we were feeding the homeless, and one time somebody forgot to bring, we had like 200 homeless people in, this, in, the, in, our, in our room, and somebody forgot to bring like on the main dish. So we had like bread and dinner rolls, and that's it. And so the church across the street, the Baptist church, was like, oh, we got leftover food, you know, but it was chicken, right? In an Adventist setting, you cannot bring meat into, onto the church property. And because of that, no one got fed. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm making this stuff. I got tons of those stories. I'm trying to keep it PG rated right now. I don't I didn't even get into the R or the rated X version of that because, you know, I want to come back next year and talk with you guys and hang out, you know. But God, I think, has called us to this. So let's talk a little bit about some of the self and then we'll open it up for some Q&A here. Let's talk about this and understanding the role of self in all of this. So we have our self, we have our ego, but what's that influenced by? And this is where I want you guys to do some of the hard homework and to ask yourself the questions, where do these things come up? Where's your perspective coming from? What did your family say about life? There we go, that boy's just smiling, that's what I'm talking about. What does your family say about church and social groups? Were you even raised in a Christian home? 
You know, that's going to give you a lot of insight about where you're at. I always tell, you know, my students when I when you do marriage and family therapy is you got to go back at least two or three generations to begin to figure out what the heck has been going on in your life. Because stuff has a funny way of resurrecting itself in different generations. You don't even know where it's coming from. You may act a certain way, not even know it. And that was from great, great, great auntie or great uncle who used to do the same thing. But now it's in you. See what I'm saying? So it's breaking those generational curses, including racism. Uh-oh. All right, so perspective. Well, what else do we got? We got family dynamics. How does your family inter you know, interact with conflict? Was silence a virtue or a value? You know, so when my wife and I got married, we had to work through that, you know. My wife's family was very quiet at the dinner table, very astute, you know, crack a few jokes. You know, whereas in my family, it was like, no, getting into it, right? A little bit louder, a little bit, you know, so I didn't understand. I could, it was hard for me to interpret the silence. That's just one aspect, because it can cause tension, you know. The silence in my family meant you were hiding something. You, what you got? Man, you too dang quiet, huh? You know, man, you say something, man, you know. Especially in my family, if you didn't eat, oh, there was something wrong with you. You know, because grandma come out with the chicken and the turkey and the collard greens, she's like, um, you better eat. You know, whereas in, you know, my wife's family, it's kind of like, you know, it's almost offensive to take too much food. But you got to work through that. See what I'm saying? Because that affects you. It affects how you communicate. It affects how you see your kids. You know, because you know, you, you know, you've seen some kids when you bring out the pizza and they're like stuffing five and six slices in their jacket and everything. So these would be like, damn, boy. But what's going on? You know, I've talked to kids like that and a lot of them come from big families and they're like, hey, I got to get the food now because they ain't going to be seconds. <laughs> you know, those of you who come from a family larger than two or three, you know, they ain't going to be seconds, you know. Whoever puts it out, that's it. So family dynamics, well, what else? Socialization, family processes, group processes, where you grew up geologically has a lot to say about who you are. You know, I had to overcome a lot of my Texas-ness, you know, my Texasation of, of life. You know, because, it, you know, I just was. I mean, I, I love, don't get me wrong, I love, you know, smoked beef brisket, but, you know, that's about all I took from Texas was the cooking thing. So socialization is big. How you were socialized, how you were brought up to see God. You know, I was brought up to see God as, you know, my mom was in the church and all the deacons were trying to tell me, you know, don't be having sex, don't be having sex, but they steady trying to get in my mom's pants. So what does that say? Oh, okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. I got what time it is. Well, what else? Worldview, formed by family, friends, and church. These are the, these are the big ones. Friends. I don't like them. Mm-mm. Oh, you know, I don't like them people. You know, your worldview, where did you grow up at? And then ultimately, what did your worldview say about the gospel? How's the gospel? Is the gospel accessible? Is God too perfect? I mean, that's the reason I went to the Nation of Islam for a long time, because I saw God as being too perfect. The Nation of Islam painted for me one of the first times a contextual black Christ. All right? Because I had never seen that before. Ever. So I was like, how am I going to worship this? You know, that, people say, oh, the color of God doesn't matter. No, it matters. I'm here to say it matters. You can disagree with me all dang day. You teach your seminar, you teach a different way. I'm up here right now, so, mm. you know, <laughs> I'm just messing with y'all. At the end of the day, it's a social construct. I mean, yes, ultimately, does it matter? Ah, okay, ultimately, when we get to heaven. But right now, yeah, go to Latin America. Go to South America and, and, and look at some of the images of Christ and how they, and how they see Christ. Go to Asian America and see some of the Korean, Korean Christ. I mean, I bet you've never seen some of these images of Christ. Because you know who that image is, all right? That is, uh, what is this, um... Leonardo's brother. That's, 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 that's who the, this traditionalized image of Christ is. It was formed after a Caesar. 
uh, in the, uh, I forgot what dynasty it was, uh, but it was in, in Rome. That, the traditional image of Christ with the beard and the long, flowy hair. And then it got even further after the Civil War. Well, during the Civil War, they gave the, uh, the idea of a blonde hair, blue-eyed Christ to soldiers. And then it just became standard. Like I said, we had time, we'd go through all this, but we don't. And then lastly, personal experience. Formed by the places you've been, people you've interacted with. What has been your personal experience? Because guess what? If all you've ever experienced is the negative of a certain people group, that's probably what's going to stick with you. Because there's some truth to stereotypes. I don't know. I do sag my pants a little bit and I listen to rap. And I like chicken. All right? I can't stand watermelon. You know? But uh, I like melon. It depends on it. You know, when I was in uh, uh, Alhambra, California, there's a large Asian population. And so when I was there, you know, somebody would cut me off and I'd be like, dang, man, there's an Asian driver. So all those things go through my head, you know. And so your personal experience, what's going on with that? And see, you have to do the hard work of breaking this stuff down. This is hard work. This stuff takes, you know, with all the students that I've ever mentored, I take them through this. I take them what's called um, through an ethno-life history and we look at the different eras that God has been involved. I look at students and say, God has been involved in your life since the moment you were conceived. Not just when you were quote-unquote saved, but the moment you were conceived. And the students blow students away all the time. We go right through this stuff. Now, there's different methods to go through this. Again, I'm showing you the top tier of this. We go through this. Every, every student back, you know, it killed me when I left Los Angeles. I had like two or three guys that I was still working with. And, you know, we were barely through half of this stuff here. You know, to really go, you know, to go on and really break that stuff down. So understanding the role of self. Last slide. Everybody get this? Uh, and then lastly, of course, this develops our communication style and ultimately how we communicate God's love to other people. You know, are you there to serve? Are you there to help? Are you there to listen? Are you there to act? I think somebody, I think it was you who was saying, you know, you got to not only listen, but you got to go out and do, you know. Because it's one thing to know, have all this knowledge, but then to say, you know, because it's very easy to say, well, that's just me. I, I ain't going to change. That's just me. I'm telling you, that's... Yeah, that's 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 stiff neckness. <laughs> don't 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 get stuck there. But it's easy to get stuck there. All right, last one: communicating the gospel. We got God, what I like to call gospel fluidity. Uh, these are like four areas that I want to kind of leave you with. These are big areas, but this is methodology a little bit uh, on how to do some of these things. The first thing I would do is say, observe. What's going on? Ask some questions. Try to avoid why. Why connotes hostility a lot of times. Why do you do that? Why do you fix your hair like that? Why, why, why? People don't know why they do what they do. They just do it. What? Where? When? How? Tell me a little bit about what just went on. I'm, I'm curious to know what just happened. You know, I saw you the other day eat that and just tell me. I'm, I'm not used to that. And just share with me a little bit about that. You know, and then listen. And that's what I do. I mean, you know, I mean, I love hip hop. Got a little book on soul of hip hop, theology of hip hop. You know, but this stuff that I just listen to, and I'm just like, man, this is crap. You know, but students love it. So I got to go and ask, okay, what what is it that makes you love this particular artist? Because you know, they whack to me. But you know, you know, come and let's let's do let's let's have that observation. Engaging. This is where you get involved. You get involved. You start engaging. Start getting in there and start saying, okay, I want to understand this better. Because a lot of it is just going to take time. By the way, if you haven't figured it out, this stuff takes time. Years. Years. And that's, that's hard because we live in a pretty fast society. We, we want the Tony Robinson five-step process, right? Do this, do that, do this, and you become a non-racist and you become a better, effective minister of the gospel. Nah. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. And if you're fooled into thinking that, you know, run from that seminar. Then you begin to kind of begin to develop some type of understanding. 
about these, 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 this culture, uh, this particular people group, this particular ethnic group, and you begin to actually have some sympathy and some compassion as opposed to, uh, you know, just judging it. Because it's very easy to judge. Very easy to judge. And then lastly, I would say getting involved, participation. So observing, engaging, understanding, and participation. These are not, you don't necessarily have to always do these in order. Sometimes you can go right from here, and people want to pull you right in. Hey, let's participate. Let me get you involved. You know, I'm always learning new terms from my students. Like, hey, tell me about that. I didn't I haven't heard that term. Shoot, I came up in the 80s and 90s, you know. I still think, uh, you know, uh, I still call people cats. Hey, check that cat out over there, you know. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting dated, so I have to better understand what the language is of the students that I work with. And then ultimately, this will hopefully begin to break down the good news to multi-ethnic settings. Is it making sense? What are we doing on time over there, brother? No, let's take the questions. Okay. All right. How much? How much time before we got? I, I, about uh, about twelve minutes. Twelve minutes before we before we end. Okay. Let me. Um. I wanted to show you a video, but at the same time, I think I know a lot of you guys got questions. So, let me just let's let's just dive into that, and then if we have time, I can show this little film clip. It's it's essentially saying a lot of the same stuff I'm saying, uh, but it's done by a group called Urban Entry. If you're not familiar with Urban Entry, highly recommend checking them out. UrbanEntry.org, and it really helps. You folks who are trying to do and build bridges uh, multi-ethnic, it's a DVD series. So they have these like 16-minute clippets on like race and culture or immigration and, uh, you know, missions to the suburbs, you know, um, all those type of things. You know, it's about 15 minutes and it has questions and answers and, and it kind of starts the conversation. So urbanentry.org. But let's open it up to some Q&A and uh, engage in a conversation. Yes, let me go here and then I'll come back to you, sir, and then we'll come back over here. One thing I just wanted to mention you had... Um, something and I really recommend. I almost think it's a re should be a requirement for churches to um, youth groups to watch the movie um, Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. It really gives uh, you know there are a lot of preconceived notions that I think people have. Oh yeah. There's some really some good things that I think you can learn from um, our Christian faith and how. Yes. Absolutely. I think it's an excellent movie. Highly agree. Highly agree. Can't can't couldn't stress that enough. Also, if you haven't seen The Color of Fear. Highly recommend seeing The Color of Fear. Um, but it's heavy. I was going to show a clip here, and I was like, nah, I ain't going to open that can of worms. But uh, it, it's heavy. It's heavy. Color of Fear. You can go to Color of Fear on the line. You can see some clips. Yes, sir. <clears throat> I, I'm going to start with uh, the, the contact info you mentioned about getting your email on it. Is, you put that on the screen already? I'm not, not yet. I'll, I'll let people finish writing this down, then I'll put it up there. And then um, my <clears throat> comment or question has to do with you know just listening you talk about um, how different we are pretty much, mm -hmm. the ethnicity and the race and what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also <clears throat> the similarity. Sure. As, as I listen to you, though, I mean, when you think about this last portion, the observing, engaging, understanding, and participation, mm -hmm. um, if, if the goal is to get the gospel to all people. Sure. And, 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 and the word says that all have sin. Mm -hmm. And we also have the Holy Spirit. Can you make a comment on the similarity because whether you Asian, whatever you are, sure, absolutely, you know, by nature, and wherever you, you come from, the Holy Spirit yeah. can still get through to you. So can you just make a comment on that? Sure. Is this thing that is us doing all the work, but the Holy Spirit doing His work as well, <laughs> letting people know how 
how they are sinners by nature. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, I think that's a really good uh, talk. And I, I, I would say, too, that even the way we view sin is informed by some of these social constructs, which is why I would say this is almost a pre-metaphor to even, even getting into those conversations because if I'm going to go to somebody and I already think that they're, for example, we think that all homeless people, like I had to convince an entire class one time that homeless people actually know who God is. Because they were like, how can you be homeless and know who God is? Because God blesses those who know him. You know, so we had to have that conversation for 16 weeks. And I think I had like two of them really get it. The rest were like, just give me my A because I'm ready to go, get ready to move on. But you're absolutely right. We are similar. They all have fallen. And when, when it comes back down to it, we are trying to, as Tupac would say, find our way to heaven. You know, find our way to that gospel, and you know, and like you said, the sin part does hold us up, which is, which is, we're we're seeing a result of this. I mean, racism and classism and all these other isms. A lot of them have, you know, are rooted in sin. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's just call it for what it is. They're strongholds, and I would also say, if you want to take it even a step further in the spiritual world, those strongholds, those principalities of darkness. Because remember, evil spirits and demonic powers don't look like what they look like on television. You know, with the eyes and the horns and the. Because if we saw that, we think, well, sh I'm staying the hell away from that. Shoot, I ain't going over there. But when it looks like a professional business person, and you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. We're a lot less likely to be, have our, our, our eyes up. So when you start dealing with this, know that you're dealing with stuff in the spiritual realm as well that people don't want to change. The devil, the enemy, wants to keep us confounded and segregated. <laughs> Because there's, there's power when we come together. So I would, I would definitely agree with you. And I would say, though, that we have to understand this because that's going to inform how we even see sin and theology in God, if that makes sense. Because that gets culturally rooted as well. Because like I, I made a quote, a quote this morning, like David Bosch says, that so often the poor is connected to heathen and lost and heretic, you know. And we don't think that God's been doing stuff long before we show up. But anyways, what else? What else we got? Just good points so far. Yes. All right. That has recently, in the last five years, experienced white flight. Uh oh. As lots of um, refugees from Liberia have come in, we now have second, third generation youth that I'm struggling with my males who have come over. You know, many of them grown up in refugee camps. Yep. Um, yep. The, the men are, the boys are coming over, identifying with this hip hop culture, mm -hmm. the drugs, the American consumerism. Yeah. And they're just little bombs blowing up all over the place. Sure, sure. I mean, they're self-destructive. Um, and yet they think this is the path right. that America has carved out for them. Yeah. How do I get them to see? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are so much more than that. So what resources oh. are there for... Because I have, I still have a small remnant of my white suburban kids, mm. and I have this very large population now of, um, I work in a Methodist church, and Methodist church in Africa is huge. Sure, absolutely. So when they come here, they're going to go to church, and these boys wear their ties and their suits, and they are there every week, and then they're out right after church. You know, um, yeah. harming themselves yeah. things that they don't even understand because they think this is what it, this is what they're seeing on TV. Yep. This is what they're seeing in the schools. Yep. They think this yeah. is the right path. Well, an Americanization of first-generation immigrant families is powerful. That that Titus Swift, and we typically see that very often. With I saw that very. Very true with Honduran families, Guatemalan families, and Mexican families and living in Los Angeles and San Diego. Um, 
I, you're right. I mean, this is that's deep, and I don't want to just give a quick answer. I would say part of it is helping them. Like, don't go against the current with hip hop. I'm pro hip hop. What they're seeing is a very small sliver of hip hop. Minneapolis, Twin Cities is. I don't know if you live here, but I mean, there's it's, it's filled with underground hip hop. Find those spots and take them to conscious rap, conscious hip hop places. I can, we can talk. I'll give you my contact information. In fact, let me just go ahead and pull it up. If you don't have this, you can um, email me and I'll, and I'll get it to you. But this is my contact information. Um, I'll point you in the direction of some folks and to get those students introduced to something that's actually pushing them in the right direction as opposed to just more. You know, because I've been on panels with 50 and P. Diddy and those cats, and it's just, it's money to them. You know, but the kids don't see that. And the kids imitate that stuff because they think that's what I gotta be. I mean, my kids are buying shoes, Jordan shoes, and not eating for two weeks. Right, exactly. They're not eating. Exactly. They're starving. Well, I can tell you right now, there's, there's probably not a lot you're gonna be able to say or do that's gonna get them to necessarily stop. That's gonna have to be something that's lived out. And those type of things, it's like one time I was doing this men's deal, young men's deal with these young men, and one of the young brothers, we were talking about, you know, being a little bit more, you know, equitable treating, you know, women. And one of the young brothers said, well, you know what, Dan, women to me are like a library. I can go in and check any one of them out I want anytime, and then when I'm done, I just put them back. Or I leave them on the table for the homie to check out. That worldview, ain't nothing I can do in one hour, two hours, three years. But... Everyday interaction, everyday walking, everyday that slow path. I am about quality, not quantity. And it was one of the reasons why I couldn't work for organizations that continually wanted me to give quotas. How many people got saved? How many people did this? Now, how many people come to your church? Uh, no. No, I'm, I'm done that. Because I think what you're doing is great. But you're introducing to some positive stuff. I'll give you some resources. Great. Thank you. Uh, yes, ma'am. Right, right. Because I've those relationships. Just because you're talking to a youth, they're not going to trust you anyway right off the bat. But you got to continue to spark and build relationships and talk to them about their interests. It's not about what you want from them. It's about what they want for themselves. Yeah. And the only way you're going to get that from them. I'll tell you a quick story. i got a girl right now that I've worked with for almost, what, five, six years. She's 17 years old. she got two kids. I told her from day one, when I met her in jail, you will graduate from high school. This is not an option. You will graduate. <laughs> she walked across the stage. I was there. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. She graduated. And now she's going to college. Yeah. Not because I said, you're going to go to college. Because, again, this girl came from a family who was all over the map, had, if y'all want to say demons and all that stuff in their family. But I told her that you are better than that. Yeah. You can keep moving. And yeah. that's why I keep hearing people saying, well, how do you do it? Build the relationships. Yeah. Stop worrying about if they got their pants hanging and all that. Because that's, yeah. that's not where it's at. They're not going to listen to you anyway if you're not building that relationship with them. That's and, that's, and that's ultimately why you're, you're making an excellent point. I, and I really want to re, re, reinforce it that it is about the relationship. Because everything else for me is just side. I mean, I'm a big, it's another reason why I don't work for an organization right now. Because I don't like running programs. 
I, they're great to get the conversation started, but it is about a relationship and it is about enduring 10, 15 years. I mean, some of the folks that I've been involved with has been decades now. And people aren't going to do what you want. You know, they, they, remember that. People are never going to ever do what it is you want them to do. They'll do something, maybe, but it's got to be their thing. Because we don't want robots, right? We don't want cookie-cutter students going out and doing exactly what we want. If that's the case, then let's just stop now and let's just go get a factory of Christian believers, you know? And I don't, and I don't want that. So you're absolutely right. It's relationship. It's the key. It's being involved daily. And there's going to be stuff. Guess what? In diversity, there's go you're going to be offended on some, on some levels. There's going to be some stuff that you just don't agree with. But is that a relationship? Is that a relationship? So I can't say that. Let me come up here, and then I'll come back down here. I, I think that relationship has to do with respect. I mean, I, I think it, it has to do with, with whether it's a, 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 a cultural difference between generations sure. or any other. You know, if, if, if a youth senses it as a old guy, I still want to know what their world is like, and I actually really care about it and respect where they're, where they're at. They're going to they're gonna feel good about building it. Yep. The same way if I speak to somebody who's from a, another ethnic culture and I don't understand their ethnic culture, yeah. you kind of said it early on, you can be a little blunt as long as you do it respectfully. So, I, you know, I, I don't understand how that works for you. Can you tell me about that? My experience has been people are, are pretty interested is if they if, if they don't think you're just, you know, toying with Yeah. If they think you're genuine, they want to they share and I would say definitely the hard work, I think, comes back to what we're doing, the undergirding of to figure it out. Don't stop what you're doing, but begin to learn more about who you are and how you fit into this, right? Yes, ma'am. Well, I work with a okay. group that's very interested in learning other religious um, practices and understanding. Sure, sure. Um, but how do I um, get permission from the old white folks that's here? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a minefield. Because they're, they're coming to this church to learn about these practices. Right. Not to have their kids exposed to right. all these other practices. Sure. <laughs> so how, how do I do that? Let me, I know they're, just, they're giving me the sign that we got to wrap up. Let's talk afterwards because there's, I'm, I'm a big, I, I, I work with Zulu Nation. I work with Nation of Islam. I work with Five Percenters. If, especially if you're going to be in the urban environment or that urban-suburban blend, it will come up. And so there's some things that you can do, but it's, it, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's rough. Because when people see other religions and they've always seen you know, just Christianity, it, it's going to be a fight. And so it depends on how much you want to take it and how much you want to fight. Um, you may have to take stuff off campus, and I've had to do that which is why I don't work for an organization anymore. <laughs> I do my own thing. That's my concern. I'm like, oh, I know you guys want to learn about this stuff, and I'm up for it, but y'all got parents. Let's, let's, let's talk right afterwards. I don't, but I know they're giving me the time. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your insights, your comments, your questions. I'm on Twitter or Facebook. Hit a brother up. The book's on sale, Solar Hip Hop. We talk about a lot of this stuff as well. Um, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.